What's up guys, welcome to Foul Play, where we recount the stories that sit at the intersection of sport and true crime. My name is Adriana, and I will be your host. Foul Play is a podcast for people like me who love sport and true crime. It's about the fascinating stories of how some of our favorite and some not so well-known people in sports get entangled in the world of true crime. And I'm not just talking about the wild murder stories, hello OJ Simpson. I want to know the details of the petty crimes, the stories of greed and passion, the tales that are equal parts sad, infuriating, and so ridiculous you just can't look away. Each week, I will do my best to tell a special guest and all you listeners the stories that have captivated me personally. My guests may not necessarily be true crime fans. In fact, some probably think I'm weird or nuts or maybe evil for being kind of obsessed with it, but I promise I can tell you a story that'll make your jaw drop. So if I've chosen these stories for my guest based on a connection or a hook I think they'd be interested in, and I've invited them here to come talk about it. So I will now like to introduce my first guest, a fellow robot and lover of sport, Mr. JT Simon. Welcome to the show, JT. Thank you for having me, Adriana. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for you to be here. Um, you know, I've been talking about this for a long time, and because you sit behind me, I think that you've overheard me telling a lot of weird, crazy stories about true crime. Um, so I thought it was perfect for you to be the first one. Absolutely. I can't wait. This is awesome. So I don't want to get too much into it, but the reason why I chose this story was because um, you and I competed pretty uh, heavily in fantasy <laughs> football this year. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We did. And yes, okay, you, you won, you won, uh, but not, not without a fight. Yeah, that's true. I wish I had my trophy here right now. <laughs> I wish you didn't. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I actually, before we jump in, uh, I want to know, like, what do you feel about true crime and the popularity of shows and podcasts like these? Um, I'm into it. I think, um, you know, I'm kind of a fan. One of my favorite shows um, of the most recent decade was, I believe it's called Making a Murder. Mm -hmm. um, that was an incredible story um and then most recently just tiger king i think the underlying kind of uh potential murder of carol baskin's uh former ex-husband was was pretty fascinating so um i think anything that's kind of real is always super interesting and um i'm definitely a fan of of crime and and unfortunately like greed stories um some of my favorite uh documentaries are based in like financial greed and business so mm -hmm. totally into it yeah, I don't, I, I, I can't say that I pay attention to those stories as much as I do, like, the outrageous ones, like, like the one I'm about to tell you. Yeah. Um, I, I, you have given me some recommendations that I haven't uh, looked into yet, but um, it's on my list. I actually haven't finished Tiger King yet. Um, oh, I, saw, uh, I saw the first two episodes. It's, it's wild. I had actually started listening to a podcast about it, um, and then just, like, didn't really get into it and all this craziness with COVID-19 and I haven't really been listening um, to many shows at all, but it, it, it's on my list. So I'll let you know if the show is better than the podcast or the other way around. Well, I feel um, bad because I kind of just spo spoiled part of Tiger King for you. Well, I mean, you didn't spoil it. Social media did. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so yeah, so because of the whole tide of football and, and all that, um, today I'm going to be telling you the story of Ray Carruth. Okay. You know that name? I don't. Okay, great. Let's <laughs> set it up. So it's just after midnight on November 16th, 1991. I'm sorry, 1999. 
Okay. And the 911 call comes in um, in Charlotte, North Carolina from a woman named Sharika Adams. Um, she's crying, she's distressed. You can tell she's in a lot of pain. Um, and she's explaining through tears to the dispatcher that she had just been shot. Um, she describes being in her car, uh, driving behind her boyfriend um, and saying that he slows down and that a car pulled up next to her and fired shots into the car. She had actually been shot um, four times, but was able to make the 911 call and explain to them what happened. So they're, they're rushing there, they're, they're trying to get there. Um, and she tells them she's 24 years old. Um, she's eight months pregnant with a baby boy on the way and that uh, she had been shot in her back and her neck. And when they ask her who her boyfriend was or who she was with, that's when she tells them her boyfriend was driving the car in front of her was Ray Carruth. Oh, wow. So let's tell you a little bit about Sharika Adams. Um, she was born in um, North Carolina, I believe. She moved at, in a, at a young age to Charlotte um, in third grade. She was petite, uh, brown eyes, her friends and family. Every, every article that I read um, described her as gorgeous, beautiful. She was interested in fashion and modeling. Um, I think there was one quote that she was unaware of how beautiful she was. Um, and her parents had actually had her when they were seniors in high school. So was, they were pretty young. Um, and she was very, very close to her mom, Sandra. Um, and she actually came from a family of farmers too. Oh, nice. <laughs> Relatable story. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you know, you can relate. Um, <laughs> as an adult, um, she worked as a real estate agent. Um, after dropping out of college, um, she wasn't into school. It's not what she wanted to do. She actually preferred the showing homes and helping people in that way. She uh, was very outgoing and she made friends really, really easily. Um, and then she also made money as a dancer at a strip club. Um, and that's actually how she met Ray. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was in the summer of 1998 uh, when she was dancing at one of the clubs in um, Charlotte when Ray came in and they met. Um, and yeah, she, you know, she was very caring for others. Uh, there's stories of her, you know, taking her coworkers and her son to help her, you know, get off her feet and, and, and help them, um, you know, just get better. And, and, and um, I don't know, she was just like a really, really good person. That's everything I read um, described her in that way. And actually, before I get any farther, I want to call out uh, my sources before I get in trouble. <laughs> um, I got a lot of the, the, these details from um, an article from The Undefeated. Mm -hmm. um, the Charlotte Observer uh, actually followed this case really, really closely. They have a podcast that's really good. I highly recommend. It's called Caruth. Um, they also um, have a series of articles and um, a documentary on YouTube um, and videos. So they went really, really deep in it. So I'm not going to give you all the details. We only have an hour. Um, <laughs> but if you are interested, I highly recommend um, listening to that podcast. Sure. And then there were some other articles from like the Sacramento Bee. Um, this show called The Killer Speaks did an episode on them. So I'll get into those details later, but wanted to call out my sources before I uh, get in trouble. <laughs> um, so, so that's Sharika. Um, now I'm going to tell you about Ray Carruth. And I think once I start explaining who he is, you're going to remember. Um, he was born in Sacramento, California, um, January 20th, 1974. And he grew up in Oak Park, um, which was known as a rougher part of town. Um, there was a lot of drug use and the rate homicide rate was pretty high. Um, 
So he, you know, they were scared for him growing up in that, in that environment, but he actually um, did really well avoiding those crowds. Um, he was very focused on school and, and sports. Um, and uh, he played a lot of different sports, but like football was the one that like was his love. Um, so he didn't really get mixed up in anything that was going on in the community because he took the sport so seriously. And for him, like his main, uh, objective in life was to be super successful and famous. Like I've read that a few places. Like he just wanted to be famous. I don't know. It's lit. Some people want to do that. (laughs) I respect it. I respect it. (laughs) Um, so, so yeah, he, because he was so focused on football, he didn't have a like large group of friends growing up or like a really tight knit group. Actually, nobody really saw much of him. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a story reference in almost all the articles I read um, where they describe his father um, not being very, uh, he wasn't very active in his life, but he did know that Ray loved sport and he wanted him to stay out of trouble. So he actually went and reached out to his high school coach um, and asked him to look out for his son and to help him get into college and hold him accountable and all that. Mm. Um, and the coach was like, uh, yeah, dude, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> and no one ever saw his dad again. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Um, but he did it. Like his coach actually really helped him and, and what, you know, helps him just be hyper-focused on, on, on being the best uh, football player that he could be. Mm-hmm. Um, so he excelled in it. Um, I think as a sophomore, he started playing varsity football at uh, Valley High School in his town. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are quotes from his coaches that were like, you know, I've never coached a kid as fast as him. He blew by the other kids on the field. Um, they even talked about like some of his opponents um, and team members just saying like, it was just impossible to catch this kid. Like he was so good. Um, and so he became a superstar wide receiver. Um, so like I said, because he didn't have a lot of friends or whatever, there were a lot of mentions of him being like super quiet, um, and very much to himself, uh, not too much was actually known about him growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he was just like super laser focused of getting out of Sacramento. Like he, like I said before, he just wanted to be famous and he didn't want to live there anymore. Um, I've never been to Sacramento, so I, I can't say like, if it's a shitty town or not, like I can't relate to why someone would want to leave, but apparently he hated it there. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so this like desire of being famous is actually like a thread in his storyline that that like he he wanted to be in the spotlight, but he didn't want anyone anything anyone to really know anything about him. This will remain like a a thread in the story. Contradicting. Um, yeah. So so for him, like getting that athletic scholarship was his ticket out. Of Sacramento. Right. Um, so when it came time for him to start uh, the recruiting trips to different colleges, he took that super seriously. Um, he was a small guy. He was just 5'11", 194 pounds, um, but super, super fast, very athletic. Um, and there was, so there was a lot of interest in him from different schools that he was visiting with and recruiters who had come out to see him. Um, and he showed up Uh, actually he showed up to the University of Colorado like I said super serious um with in a suit and with a briefcase ready to make his dreams come true there 
Um, and they actually like, they, they, there was an interview where they were like, they found this super odd, like they're used to kids showing up, like ready to have fun. Like, yes, they want to go play there, but they also like, they're jocks. Like they want to party and they want to see like a kids. Right. Exactly. Um, did you play sports growing up? I did. I played basketball and hockey. And, and, and like, what was that for you? Like, did you take it super seriously or were you... Um, I mean, fairly seriously <laughs> until I realized that, uh, my desire to, uh, make it to the, the league, uh, in terms of the NBA was probably not likely and yeah. that became, uh, less encouraging. <laughs> well, that wasn't the case for Ray. <laughs> <laughs> Good for Ray. No? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so like most kids that age, like I said, are like looking to have fun, but he... He said that for him, it was a business trip. Like he was there to make it happen and he treated it as such. And so like, he even showed up with like a notepad and his pen and he was taking notes. And like, even though the teams found it odd, they were actually really impressed by that. And so the University of Colorado were like, we want you, you got to come play for us. Um, so soon after that, in 92, he got a full ride and he became a Colorado Buffalo. Wow. <laughs> so he was actually part of, I don't know if, you're familiar. I wasn't familiar with this, um, but I, I looked it up. He was part of that iconic uh, game in 1994, the Miracle at Michigan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for those listening who don't know that story, like me, who has to do the research, um, I so it's it was the um, game that happened at Michigan um, where they actually beat Michigan by one point in the final play. Um, it was Colorado quarterback Cordell Stewart threw a 64-yard Hail Mary to Michael Westbrook to win the game. Um, they had scored, like, two touchdowns in the last two minutes of the game or something to make it happen. Um, ESPN described it as one of the one of top two wildest finishes in Michigan history. Crazy. I know we have a lot of Michigan fans who are in our circle and who will probably <laughs> So they they probably hate me. I probably destroyed that story, but <laughs> um, so yeah. So while he was in college, um, he actually fathered a son um, with his on again off again girlfriend, um, which resulted in some legal ba battles um, around child support. He was eventually ordered to pay, um, I believe it was something between two thousand seven hundred or three thousand a month in child support. Um, while he was in college. While he was in college. Or I don't know. Yeah. So I know that it started in college. I don't know if he was finally ordered to do so after when he became a pro. Um, but I know that at the end, like that's how he had to, how much he had to pay in child support. Um, and that actually will come back um, in, in the story because it, it was something that um, he hated. Like he hated the fact that he had to pay this child support. He hated the fact that she had the kids. She didn't, he didn't want kids. Right. It, it it was just like he he was known for being a womanizer he had a lot of lady friends um so that was probably for him like something that got in the way yeah for sure. to say but it was you know yeah. his reality um and, and he was a good looking dude like he was a star athlete he probably even though he was super serious I'm sure like that went away after he actually started to play in college and he started to get all the glory and so he just you know all the typical jock college athlete stuff that 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 we know and, and and that we hear about all the time right right so it was um in 97 um that he entered the nfl draft um he was a first round pick by the carolina panthers 
Um, he was a 27th pick that year. So um, when they signed him, he signed a four-year, $3.7 million um, contract with a $1.3 million signing bonus. Woo! No big deal. Okay. <laughs> um, that year, he made the all-rookie team um, with 44 passes, totaling at 544 yards and four touchdowns. He was killing it. Like, yeah. star rookie. He, he was doing everything right. You know, um, and the team was so excited at his growing potential and they wanted to keep building around him with other stars on the squad. Um, there was a lot of excitement um, of what was to come in his career in the NFL, the Charlotte and the Panthers in North Carolina. Like they were really rallying around this kid um, and and they they loved him. Like there was nothing um, wrong with him. He, he wasn't like flamboyant or or there weren't any real issues to him. If anything, his teammates said that he like really kept to himself. Right. Similar to, to what we heard um, earlier in his career. And he was just like a neutral dude. He was quiet. Um, he didn't really do anything wild. He wasn't out there like partying and doing all this crazy shit with his teammates. Right, um, right, right. Um, there was really nothing crazy about him at all. Huh. Um, but there was uh, some ridiculous stories that I read about. So like, this one, um, <laughs> it was about, like, his process of choosing what number he wanted to play with. Um, he went through many of them. Um, he felt that unless one of his numbers was a one, he was going to look fat. What? Yeah. Like, he, he was like, I need one of the numbers on my jersey to be one because then I'm going to look fat. Wow. <laughs> you would think like as an NFL player, like you want to look big, right? No, nah, not this guy. <laughs> no. I don't know um, dude. <laughs> right? Like I played with number 13. Like that was never, I guess it's like it makes a lot of space, but it wasn't like a thing to me. It didn't occur. No. Man, I was 32. <laughs> this makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. So he actually um by season three, he was already wearing his fifth number. Like, he had gone through five different jersey numbers. Um, he finally settled on number 89 um, because it had no association with any other player in the team's history. And because of his desire to be famous, he was like, that's it. This is my number. I'm going to make number 89 famous on the Carolina Panthers. Um, but I think by then, his career was pretty much over. And we're going to find out why in a few. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, so it was actually in his second season in 98 that he broke his foot. Um, and so he was sidelined, um, for the rest of that season. And then in 99, he played only five games and got hurt again. So started out like really super successful. And then very quickly was his career started going down the drain. And, um, it was actually that rookie year was his best and only year in which he scored any touchdowns. Um, oh. yeah. Never again after those four touchdowns did he ever score for the Carolina Panthers or in the NFL again. Um, did his playing time change? Or... Sorry? Did his playing time change? Or he was still getting... Yeah. He hurt a lot. And um, he was sidelined after that in, in the second season. And then in his third, like, it, it just didn't... It didn't um, it work out, you know? Sometimes right. Dang. It's really unlucky for these players. It's really sad. 
Um, so the team tried to work with him. They tried to explore other positions that he could play. Um, they really wanted him to continue being successful and find a different way to, to still make it on the team. Mm -hmm. um, but he didn't want, he didn't like the physical aspects of football. <laughs> he didn't want to like the contact sport aspect of it. Like he wasn't open to trying any other position other than when he drafted for because he did not want to get hurt. He did not want to get hit. He just wanted no contact. Wrong sport, dude. Exactly. Like, why are you playing football? <laughs> um, and so like, while all of this is going on though, and his career is going down the drain, mm -hmm. off the field, he was not conservative with the paychecks. It's, it's what we hear time and time again, right? Like these young star players finally make it pro and they have no money sense. They don't know how to um, invest or, or save or take care of their money. It's, it's why, you know, we talk about um, financial wellness and among the, the athlete community and how we can teach that to other people and kids who are coming up um, in playing sport. It's like, that's such a uh, essential life skill that these kids just don't have. Right. You know? And so, because he was off, uh, sorry, not conservative with the paychecks, and he was spending a lot on his relatives. He bought a huge home. He bought two cars. He made all these crazy investments. But with his career taking a downfall, this was really not the ideal situation for his lifestyle. Like he just could not maintain it without the job security. Mm -hmm. Um. So while all this is happening, now let's have Sharika and Ray meet. Um. It's June. 1998 um they're at a pool party in charlotte and ray um and sharika meet there uh she was smitten right away like she they they the first day that she meets him at that pool party they leave and she takes him to go meet her dad oh my god day one no like way. yeah red flag, <laughs> red flag. Zero chance. What would you do if you, you met someone and they wanted you to meet their dad right away? Leave? <laughs> There's no... What? Even if you like them? I would say, let's just take it day by day. I mean, that's, that's really moving and grooving. <laughs> that's aggressive. All right. Well, whoever you are out there who meets JT, <laughs> don't introduce them to your dad. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so so she like really just fell head over heels for this guy day one um and she she was super loyal so she was not looking to just date um but he was not um he was also seeing other women and um you know she was just another person that that he was seeing at the time someone in in his um uh what's the word I don't know, but someone he was, he was seeing someone else, right? Like he was dating all these other women. He actually denied that they were anything more than just a hookup. Mm -hmm. um, they were on again, off again for a while. Um, and then the year, a year later in April of 99, she becomes pregnant. Oh, wow. Not good. Bad he, decisions, Ray. Bad decisions. You just, just like, no security, man. You're not, you're not keeping it safe on the field or off. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> dang ray yeah 
bad, bad, bad. So he, of course, wants an abortion. Right. He starts to pressure her to do it. She doesn't want it. Um, you know, she was at this point, even though she's super young, like she's ready to settle down and she um, wants this baby. And, and she understands that um, maybe at, at first it wasn't so easy, but she understands that like, okay, Ray may not be in the picture, but I'm going to make it happen. And she did want to grow a family with him. Um, but he wasn't excited about it and he didn't take the relationship seriously. Um, so that, you know, hurt her and, and his career was going to shit and he was already paying child support for another kid he had in college. So he was like, what, like, what am I, like, what's happening? You right. know? Life's falling apart. Exactly. So we talk about him being super quiet and not really having the, this, this big circle of friends, but he actually does know people outside of of his team um people that he met in charlotte um some that you would say are not in the best circles um and so he visits the strip club in charlotte a lot um i i don't know if it's the same um club that sharika dances at um because i know that they, they, they meet at a pool party and he does know that she's a dancer right um but he goes to visit this um this club in 99 and the bouncer is this man named uh, Van Brett Watkins. Watkins uh, is a bouncer. He works the door. He meets Ray. Um, there's like a story where he talks about uh, like he's paying attention to all like the weirdo weirdos and the people he needs to watch out for at the club. And to him, Ray was just like some other dude who was there. Like he wasn't really like pay attention to him. But they end up becoming friends. And you know, Ray is acting like he has all this money and Watkins actually starts working for him doing stuff like washing and detailing his cars and stuff like that. Um, Watkins, let me tell you about him. This guy's nuts. Um, <laughs> he's 39 years old at the time. Um, he had actually done time already in New York for gun possession and assault, um, threatening to kill people. Um, he is, and, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, but he a little bit unhinged. Um, he talks to people however he wants. He wants to put on this persona of this like tough guy and, and yeah. he's not afraid to, 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 to say it. Um, and he actually discloses to a journalist at the Charlotte Observer, um, where I got a lot of this, this information from, that people didn't really actually know the full extent of his murderous past, quote, um, or the people that he's crippled. Um, he, he said that? He said that, yeah. Oh, so wow. He, yeah, he used to be contracted by women in um, cities like New York, Miami, Atlanta, um, in North Carolina too, um, who were actually being abused by men and wanted to get rid of them. Mm. So these women would pay him and he would go out and find these guys and it's not I don't I'm not really sure if he I mean he says he had a murderous past I don't know how many men or people he killed right. um I, I I didn't find that anywhere um but he he would go and get rid of these guys who were abusing these women Jesus yeah um so his nickname was New York a little side anecdote he was apparently good at basketball I don't know hmm. um <laughs> Uh, that's the, that's really the extent of, of the information I could find about him. Yeah. Um, it was also noted that he um, he's very violent. Um, he said some like 
wild stuff during the trial that I'll, I'll get into in a bit, but he was also not exactly a model inmate. Um, he one time set another inmate on fire. Oh my God. For talking about his mom and his grandmother. Holy shit. This guy's crazy. Insane. Insane. Like, can you imagine you're, you're just sleeping there and it's just like, boom, fire. <laughs> oh my God. You know, talking about his mom. Lesson learned for that guy. <laughs> um, this other time he, um, so he's, he's telling the, the reporter about this, like, quote unquote murderous past right and he's saying that he um he one time beat a guy with a brick over the head over his sweetheart in new york um he put him in a coma and he said quote he was lucky that day because i stopped you can feel the high it's like driving a car at 170 miles per hour oh he is a lunatic yeah yeah oh my god <laughs> And he was this big guy. Like, there's actually footage of him um, uh, talking, speaking at the trial and, like, interviews and stuff. He is huge, like, scary, scary dude. If The kind of person you'd, like, run away from if you saw. Right, right. Um, he seems very proud of his uh, his crimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, there's there's quotes from him later where he was like, yeah, I did it. Like, he, and he's like, Ruth told me to do it, so, like, I did it. Oh, um and, and actually, I'm about to get into it. He, so what happens is that Cruz is growing really frustrated with the fact that Sharika decides to keep the baby. He doesn't want it. Mm -hmm. um, he already knows, like, he's paying the 3000 a month in child support for the other kid. And he's just like, shit, now I'm going to have to pay all this other money for the second kid. I don't even want the kid. Um, and he's like, I got to get rid of the situation. Right. So he hits up Karu uh sorry, walk-ins. And he's like, yo, I got this girl pregnant. I don't want it. How much would you charge if I asked you to beat her up and lose the baby? Oh, my God. I'm not trying to pay any more child support. I just, I don't want the baby. How much do you need? So Watkins is like, I don't beat people up. I kill them. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Insane. So finally, I mean, I don't think Cruz wanted to kill her necessarily in the beginning i think yeah. i think it escalated to that point i think he genuinely was like i just don't want this baby like just heart is horrible to even say but like can you just beat her up to the point where she loses it like i just i just don't want it right um so they settle on six g's he pays him three thousand up front and then three thousand afterwards um which is just horrible Two months of child support. That's a pretty decent deal, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. It's, it's <laughs> a two-month investment to never have to pay child support again, right? Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, Watkins takes the deal. Um, and they, he starts, so he has, like, this whole process um, for how he plans, I guess, how he kills people. I don't know. But he, for months, um, he starts stalking her. He uh, wants to get to know like what her routines are, what car she drives, uh, what time she's getting in from work, what time she's leaving, where she parks, just getting a detailed uh, plan of like what her routine is every day so that right. he can plan how he's going to do the deed. Um, and this took a few months, right? Like you, you can't, you can't rush the kill. Um, <laughs> And Caruth is just like, he's not having it. He's like, what are you doing? 
why hasn't this gotten done yet? Her belly's getting bigger. The baby's growing. Like, you're only making this worse. Like, when are you just going to fucking do it? Mm-hmm. He's getting frustrated. Um, and because, you know, he's in these circles and he's hanging out at the, at the, the clubs and stuff, and she's a dancer, he also has people in his ear who are like, yo, you're really going to have a baby with this dancer? And I don't want to, I, I'm not yucking anyone's yum. Like I am all for, you know, sexual empowerment. Like however you want to make your money, sex workers are workers. Mm -hmm. But they were in his ear saying like, you know, how are you going to have a baby with this hoe? Just Uh, because he was a dancer. And and that's fucking gross, but it is what it is. And that's, you know, the reality was at the time. And actually in the five months that Watkins was planning all this, he called him over 150 times. Oh my God. 150 times to be like, yo, what are you doing? And also coming up with different ideas and plans for what Watkins could do to get it done. Like, so not only was he not letting this guy like have his process, but he was also coming up with his own ideas for how to take Sharika out. He was micromanaging the hit. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, that wasn't great he actually like one of his ideas he told Watkins he's like all right I'm gonna take her to dinner but after dinner I'm gonna park by a dumpster and you're gonna come out and you're just gonna beat her up like (laughs) not thought through (laughs) he was just like what can we do to get this done (laughs) right right oh my god And what was he supposed to do when that happened? Just sit there in the driver's seat? Well, I guess he didn't really think that through. And actually, that rings true for how it actually ends up happening. So here we are. We're at the the day of the murder. Um, So they, I think they had like some sort of plan, um, but it was actually hours before it was carried out that Kruf changed his mind. And he uh, comes up with his own plot, right? So he's at home. He has walk-ins there. I guess they're talking about like what they're going to do. And he has these two other friends from Charlotte who he calls up. This one guy named Michael Eugene Kennedy. Um, his, he was uh, known as Little Man. He was 23 years old at the time uh, when he met Ray. He sold crack. Uh, they met at like a car shop, um, shopping for like rims or something. Um, and they became friends uh, through that. But they weren't like super close. But he was like in a crude circle. And actually, uh, Kennedy had a friend named Stanley Boss Abraham, who was his best friend, um, and they made music together. So they thought, like, if they could buddy up to Ray, maybe Ray would put invest the money to help them uh, support their, their music careers and make the demo. Right. So it's, it's like if, I don't know, if Dane tried to become, like, super close to someone so that they could Jay Cole. support music career but this guy like secretly wanted to just kill people oh my god <laughs> Dane like got caught up in it sorry Dane. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah so he calls up these uh, he calls up kennedy but kennedy shows up with um abraham they don't really know what's going on but but when they get there ray basically tells him like this is what i want to do do you know where i can get a hoopty and where i can buy a gun mm. Um, so Kennedy was like, well, what do you mean? What do you need this for? And so he tells him like what his plan is. And he's like, whoa, I don't want anything to do with this. But like, and he's like, 
he's complaining to him because he was like, this girl is still pregnant. I need to get rid of her. Like, now I need a gun. Like, I need to get out of this. Wow. Where can I get a gun? And Kennedy is like, nah, yo, I'm out. Like, I don't want to do, I don't want to have anything to do with this. But right. Like, well, now you know the story. So now you're in it. Right. <laughs> because if we end up doing it anyway, you know, you're an accomplice. You're in this. Oh, man. <laughs> and like, Kennedy, he's 23 years old. Like, he doesn't know any better. He's probably like shitting his pants. He's like, well, what do I do? And, right. and at the same time, like, he and his boy are like starstruck over Ray Crew. This guy has all this power, all this money, and so it was very easy for them to be to be convinced by him. Never meet your heroes, kids. Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so he gives him um, he gives him a hundred dollars, and he tells Kennedy to go out and buy a gun. Um, and so Caruth at this point takes calls up Sharika. She's all excited, like she's ready to like go on a date with him in her head. She's like, we're getting back together. We're going to work things out. Just so, so sad. Oh. Um, because meanwhile, like this guy is just like. Right. Scheming. Tonight, you know? Yeah. yeah. Horrible. Child support stops tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so whatever. So she, he asks her to show up at the house because um, he's going to take her to the movies. Mm-hmm. And there's actually, um, so through all of this story, um, when I was listening to the report put together by the Charlotte Observer, a lot of the accounts that they have is directly speaking to Sharika's mom. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it is really heartbreaking, um, but she actually sheds a lot of light on like what was going on for Sharika at the time. And she like had a journal and she would write about it. So they have a lot of, of, of Sharika's words in that way. Uh, but also what, what they heard from from her mom. And so her mom describes that night as like, Sharika was super excited and um, she had always, like her mom and her had always seen each other that day, like every week. Yeah. It was like, no, I have to go see Ray. Like we're going to work things out. Um, and and yeah, so she gets there um, and she she could tell that Ray is like acting like super weird. Like he keeps leaving the room to make phone calls, um, then coming back in and like, they don't, they're not like leaving for the movies yet. He's kind of like dragging it. So she in her head is like, well, this guy has been playing me all these, all this time. Like in her head, she's not thinking it could be anything beyond like, he's just talking to other women. Right. Right. Like he's just going in the other room to talk on the phone with these other chicks that he has. Right. Um, it's not the case. He's talking to her murderer. Um, so they finally go out, um, and they, yeah, so they finally go out, they go to the movies, and meanwhile, um, Kennedy and Abraham, it's two young kids, and walk-ins get in the car. Uh, so Kennedy was able to get, like, a old car, um, I don't remember who's, who it belonged to, um, I don't, I don't think it was his, I think he, like, had someone that, that he was able to get a car from. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just start driving through the city. Um, first to pick up the gun and then just like to kill time. I think Watkins is also trying to get into like the mindset of like what he's about to do. Right. Um, and they, so they end up something, something, you know about guns. Yeah. Okay. So they, <laughs> what I read or in the, what I heard, I think I, I heard a- like a disclaimer in there. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest so that we were kind of a gun-friendly community. <laughs> yeah, tell us about that. I mean, that was just kind of like a thing. Like on the farm, it's like, you know, you had 
shotguns to scare crows away from the crops and i don't know we we do trap shooting like i don't know it was just always something that i grew up around my grandfather had guns my uncles had guns so that was always kind of just like a normal part of growing up in the midwest and on a farm yeah did this like covid-19 stuff make you want to get a gun again not yet but i think it's getting there <laughs> we'll, we'll see uh what happens as people get more and more desperate but well, I, I read that, like, gun sales have, like, shot through the roof. Oh, 100%. There was, like, lines outside of, of all the gun stores. And I, it was funny. I saw this, um, uh, like, like map of the states, and it was kind of like, um, like a Hunger Games map, and it kind of broke up parts of the U.S. into, like, what do you call them, territories or whatever? Oh, like, like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, our areas, whatever. So, and it was just, like... Um, you know, which, which territory would win, but it was funny because it was like Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, like all these very gun-friendly states were all in one territory and the rest were like all on their own. I'm like, that territory is 100% going to win because they have all the guns. <laughs> it's crazy. I went to, um, I think I was in Houston for, um, for work. And I mean, being around here, like guns I just I don't see guns and like you know people aren't walking around with guns and shit and right. I was going to grab lunch in between meetings and there were signs at the door of like oh you're not allowed to carry your like firearm in here like yeah. totally like it's just like oh yeah this door we don't allow firearms maybe in that one they do right. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's like you don't see signs here for that obviously period but like down there it's like it's so normal that they have to put up signs for where you can't have guns because right. everybody carries them everywhere right scary very scary back to the story <laughs> so they describe the gun as being a 38 special okay what is that i mean it's a I, it's a handgun i couldn't tell you i don't know if it's a revolver um but i not a hundred percent sure i know it's a handgun but handgun Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if like 38 special was like, I don't know what it's called, like a slang or something. I don't know. <laughs> 38 special. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so they pick up the gun, they get a few bullets for a hundred dollars. Um, and then they drive around to kill time. And so I'm not like super clear on the details here, but what I do know is that for whatever reason, Sharika and Karuth go back to his house. Mm-hmm. And they were, they go back to the house because the plan was that after the movie, she was going to spend the night there. Mm. Um, but he tells her that he has like an appointment or something and that she can't stay over anymore or that they had to leave or go somewhere else. I, I don't remember. I don't know exactly what the details were around this, but they leave the house again in separate cars. Okay. Um, and so now she's um, back in the car that Watkins had been studying. Now she's in the car that Watkins knows that she drives. Now they're setting this whole thing up right now. This is, it's getting in motion. So Ray's driving in front of her. She's driving behind him and they uh, drive through some road where he knows that the guys are, are waiting and it's like a dark road. There's no like stop signs or anything. There's actually, I think, I don't even think there was a stop sign right. um, or, or, or lights. And she, he slows down. She's right behind him. And then he ultimately stops the car she's right behind him and that's when the car the other dudes pull up next to her and they fire four or five times into the car oh 
Um, I mean, I can't even imagine what she was thinking. Like she's this poor girl's just in her car and she's like, why is Ray stopping? Like, this is weird. And then she just sees this car pull up next to her and boom, she's shot. Yeah, I think I missed it. Why were they in separate cars again? That's, that's what is unclear to me. Um, okay. They were together and then they go to the movies and then they go back to his house. And then he tells her that for whatever reason they need to leave again. But when they leave, they leave in separate cars. Ah, okay. He tells her something to get them to be in two separate cars. It's unclear what it is. Right, right. Um, and, and we don't know that because he creates a story for why this happened. Right. Um, you know, he's not going to come out and say like, well, this is what I planned. Um, but so she shot. And um, actually, during the testimony from Watkins, who actually pulled the trigger, he describes how, like, when he shoots her, everything goes silent, right? And he looks up at Caruth, and he's sitting in his car, and this piece of shit is sitting in the car, looking in his rearview mirror, and smiling. Oh, my God. Evil. Evil. Super evil. So evil. And then, I guess, they all, they all leave. They leave the scene, right? But here's the thing. Remember that 911 call? Mm-hmm. So she doesn't die right away. She's able to make the call miraculously. Um, and she is losing a lot of blood from all the gunshots, right? So the first one hits her in her hip. The second one hit her, uh, her side just below her ribcage. Mm-hmm. The third one goes into her back. And then the fourth grazed her shoulder and goes into her neck. Oh, and through all these gunshots, they rip through her organs. And remember, she's carrying an eight-month-old yeah, baby. Yeah, right. right. So the, the 911 dispatchers, they get the, the uh, ambulance there. They rush her to the hospital. Um, and they take her directly into a, for an emergency C-section. Mm-hmm. And the baby survives. Yeah! They're able to... to, to to um get him out um he's obviously premature um and uh he actually he was actually 10 weeks premature he was only three pounds um Aww. but he he survives and they they name him chancellor lee chancellor um sadly though um they delivered the baby a little bit over an hour after she had originally been shot and because of all the loss of blood um he did not get all the oxygen he needed and actually suffered brain damage Mm. yeah really really sad but he does survive um you know at this point they call her family her mom shows up at the hospital um and she knows that sh- that that Sharika was with with Ray and Ray's not at the hospital so she's like what the hell's going on um she's like Ray needs to know what happened like maybe they like separated for whatever reason he needs to know like someone has to tell him like she's she's dying or or they're, they're trying to save her um, the baby was born. He needs to know that his baby was born. She's calling him, calling him, calling him. She can't get, get through to him. I'm, I imagine this dude was freaking out. Oh, 100% your wife. Right? People calling me. Because <laughs> I don't know if at this point he even knows that she survived. Right. She's at the hospital. I'm sure she, he just thinks that he's being called because they found her dead in the car. Right. He's yeah. like, well, what, now what do I say? So like to your point before, he didn't really plan this out all that well. Nope. <laughs> um, so, so he's, he's, you know, trying to figure out like, how do I show my face at this hospital if I'm trying to claim that I'm innocent? Mm-hmm. Right. And just like making, making his plans, but then he ends up showing up and you know what this piece of shit does? What? 
he shows up with another woman. No. It's it's like it, there's no end to, to like this guy is so dumb. Oh my god. Just horrible horrible person. Right? So he shows up with this other woman. They're in the waiting room. He doesn't ask about Sharika. He doesn't ask about the baby. He's just there, like, whatever. She's massaging him. Like, Sharika's mom describes how she's watching this man in the waiting room, and he's being massaged by another woman while, his, while her daughter is dying in the emergency room. Oh, Jesus. This is heartbreaking. But also, I want to know, what did he tell this lady that he went to the hospital with, like they were doing? Like, oh, I gotta, I gotta go see my, like, baby mama? Like, I don't that's, know. That's a great question. <laughs> and she's just like, okay. Yeah, all right, I'll just massage you while we wait. <laughs> <laughs> Bizarre. Oh, my goodness. Some of these people, anyway. So, so yeah, so, like, I wrote down the balls on this man. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. So, so, yeah, so the baby survives, but at first they didn't think he would. Um, they actually thought that the baby, uh, wouldn't, and that Sharika would. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so like the detectives get there and they find out that she's actually, that she's still breathing, um, that she's, that she's doing okay. Um, not, I mean, she's not doing okay. She has a tube down her throat, um, mm -hmm. to help her. Um, but she's able to still like react to people. People are talking to her. She's, she's still, you know, coherent. And, and even though she's not able to talk because of the tube, the nurses um, actually suggest that she write on a piece of paper to communicate. Oh my God. Right? Yep. So, so he's, she, the detectives get there, they ask her all these questions. Like it, you, they, they say that like, when you see the, the pages of what she wrote on, you can tell that it was very hard for her to write the things that she was writing. Like it was through a lot of pain that she was right. doing. But she was actually able to write out this whole sentence that I wrote down. It's quote, he was driving in front of me and stopped in the road, and a car pulled up beside me, and he blocked the front and never came back. Oh, my God. Can you imagine being, like, one of the doctors or, like, police detectives or, like, even the mom just in the room and seeing the words hit the page? Like, no. it gives me goosebumps. That's cool. I'd probably throw up. Oh, God. My body wouldn't know how to react and just puke. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so that's when the detectives are like, okay, this, this is not, like, there's something, I mean, they, they were already suspicious of, like, why did this woman just get shot at four right. times? Um, but the fact that now they know that she was with Ray, and he was in another car, and he just fled the scene, like, what are you doing? Right, right? yeah. So, after they talk to her, like, she gets really tired, they're like, all right, that's enough, Ray is still in the waiting room. And <laughs> Uh, the detectives go talk to him. Yep. So while he's there, like he's being, he's cooperating. You know, he's trying to maintain, like he's innocent. I hadn't right. nothing happened in his car. So they're like, all right, well, let us let us go through your phone. Let us go through your car. And he's like, all right, but do it. So he agrees. Um, and they already knew what Sharika said on the nine one one call. So they already know that he was there, but he right. doesn't know that. Right. Right. So they start asking him all these questions. Um, and, and the car doesn't turn up any evidence though, but they do take it. Mm -hmm. And, um, they're able to place him at the scene of the crime too, because, and at the time, um, this was like crazy new technology, but they were able to use like the cell towers and 
ping his phone and, and place him there. Right. So there. Right. Um, so his car didn't turn up any evidence. I think it's like a few days later and they pick him up to bring him back to the station to talk to him again and also give him the car. Um, and they sit him in a waiting room to wait for the vehicle. When he's sitting in there, they pull up the phone records and they're like, all right, um, you know, we're not saying that you, you did this, but maybe you can answer some questions for us because we did put you at the scene of the crime. Can you just go down this list of phone numbers on your phone records and just tell us who all these people are? And he's going through all the numbers. He's like, this is this person. This is this person. He tries to skip right over Watkins, who he had, mind you, called over 150 times, right? <laughs> And the detectives were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why did you skip over that number? And he's like, oh, yeah, this is so-and-so. I think he gave, like, a fake name. And they were like, okay, this is a number we have to look out for. Yeah. Right? So they traced the number back to a motel um, that's by the, the airport in Charlotte. And um, they don't know at first, like, who, what number this is. They just know that it's a suspicious number. Right. Go and they camp out at the hotel. Um. So I don't really understand why, but there's something about Ray hitting up Watkins again and telling him to come back. And Watkins, the genius that he is, decides to go back to the same motel that he had been staying at when the crime happened. Right. Brilliant. And now the detectives are camped out there. So they see this huge guy and they're like, hmm. Like, it, they they just made the assumption that it could be him just because of the way that he looked, but it was a correct assumption. You know, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. It's just, it is. Wow. And so Watkins was staying there with his girlfriend and they pick him up and they bring him in for questioning. And what like, they, I find, what did they tell him they were picking him up for? Like, like your number was in this phone of this guy who was allegedly at a crime scene type of situation. Probably. I mean, okay. I think I think because I actually don't know, but I think that they can just say like, "Hey, we want to ask you some questions. Can you come in?" And like they say yes or no, and he he did. He he went in. Wow. And so at first he doesn't cooperate. Um, he he's not answering any of their questions. He's like, "I'm not going to tell you shit." But while this is happening, the detectives go out and they pick up Ruth and bring him back in. Mm -hmm. So now Watkins knows that Ruth is also in the building. And they basically kind of set it up to him of saying, like, well, he's talking, so why don't you start talking? So Watkins is like, oh, really? All right. This is what happened. So um, they get the story from both of them. They're both charged with the shooting. Um, but Caruth is the only one who's able to postpone. Mm -hmm. so he gets out. Watkins is still locked up. Um, and while all of this is happening, this has now been a few weeks. Um, I think it was like a month later. Uh, Sharika doesn't make it. She ultimately passes away. Um, oh. Yeah, I think they I think they put her in a coma. Or she falls into a coma. Um, and, you know, her family has to make the horrible, horrible decision to take her off life support. Mm -hmm. So when Ray finds out that she dies, though... Now he knows that he's facing murder. Oh, shoot. And he goes on the run. Oh. <laughs> he's a genius. This is just going to keep getting better, I promise. Right, dude. <laughs> so 
so he's running, right? He has this friend, um, this woman named Wendy Cole. Um, I think she's like a family friend or maybe they like saw each other. Um, but he, he knows that she's about to go on vacation in Tennessee mm-hmm. um, and he begs her. He's like, please take me with you. I can't stay here. Um, I think that she knew a little bit about what was going on. Um, so she like reluctantly is like, all right, fine, come. Um, but you got to sit in like, the trunk of my car. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So this guy lays out in her trunk in the fetal position um, for, I don't know how many hours it takes to get from Charlotte to wherever she was and she decided that she had to stop to rest. Uh-huh. Stop at a hotel. He stays in the trunk. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So she like kind of knows what's going on with him and it's starting to like get to her. Right. She doesn't know what to do. She obviously can't talk to him. So he actually had a cell phone in the trunk with him. So while they were driving, like they would talk on the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess like he starts telling her details or whatever. And now she's starting to get nervous because now she's like, wait a minute, I'm basically helping you like yeah. The state. Yeah, you're an accomplice of some sort. Exactly. So so she starts to get nervous, and once she's in the hotel room, she calls his mom. Now his mom has also been freaking out and talking to reporters all, all morning. So that's not helping. <laughs> does, does the mom know? I, I think so. Okay. I don't think she knows that like he set up a plot to have her murdered. Yeah that she is afraid that he had something to do with it because why else would he be running? Or she probably thinks that they're trying to frame him. I don't know. Whatever you tell yourself to, to, yeah. to make yourself believe that your son is innocent, right? Right. So she's been talking to reporters that morning. She's scared. She knows that the cops are looking for him. But not only are the cops looking for him, but the bail bondsmen are also looking for him. Oh, my God. So she thinks like, all right, if I tell the bail bondsman where he is before the cops find out, maybe they'll grab him, shake some sense into him and not hurt him in the same way that the cops are going to hurt him if they're the ones that grab him. Right. So she hits them back up and she's like, I know where my son is. This is where you can find him. Right. Be those closest to you. Exactly. So, I mean, these guys are like, cool like we're not gonna go get him they tip off the cops because at this point he's crossed state lines and now the fba is involved because it's a federal case right so they're able to um contact i think they have like a satellite office that was pretty close to the hotel and they it took them just a few hours to get there but they like it's it it comes like this whole mission that like they don't show up with sirens they're not like being loud they're playing it cool so they get there and once they arrive they go and they talk to the lady at the front desk yep and what they tell her is to call wendy his friend and tell her that they need to change uh her room and that she needs to come to the front office to get her new key once she gets there the cops are waiting for her they're like yo we know you have him or you know we know you're with him you need to help us wow Mm mm-hmm and she's not denying it, but she's also not telling them where he is. Right. Um, and so she's like, so they ask her if like they can check her room. And obviously he's not in there. So she's like, yeah, check it. So they go in, whatever. Right. Obviously isn't in there. Um, they, they figure like, oh, maybe he left to go get food or something. 
Like maybe he wants to go take a walk. Like he'll be back. We're just going to sit here and wait until Ray gets back. Like, where is he going to go? Um, so, so they do that. And then it's been a while and they're like, all right, Wendy, like what's going on? Where is Ray? We know, you know where he is again. She's not denying it, but she's also not telling them. And then I think like over time, like she was just getting more and more nervous. So they finally ask her like, where is he? And she looks at the car keys. And I think like at first they don't get it. Right. Like, well, that's weird, whatever. And then they ask her again and then she looks at the car keys again and they're like, oh, I see what you're saying. He's in the car. <laughs> so then she tells him like, yeah, he's in the car. He's sitting in the trunk. Please don't hurt him. Like, let me talk to him. I'll, I'll get him to calm down. He's not going to come out and do anything crazy. Like, you don't need to hurt him. You just need to grab him. So they go to the car. Um, at this point, he's been in the trunk for 21 hours straight. Oh, my God. <laughs> in a fetal position. Oh. Right? He hasn't come out to use the bathroom. He hasn't come out. <laughs> he hasn't moved his legs in 21 hours. Like, insane. So, so they go to the trunk, and the officers or the FBI agents are like, Ray, we're here to arrest you. Don't do anything stupid. We're going to open the trunk. We know you have a gun. I think they, they knew he had a gun. I don't remember. Oh. Um, um, when we open the trunk, the first thing we need you to do is just put your hands out so that we can see that you're not armed. We're not going to hurt you. Just don't do anything stupid. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so they, I think the, the cop says that, like, the minute they open the trunk, immediately he sticks out his hands. Like, they were, like, actually shocked at how fast he did it. But I think, like, he was just, like, shitting bricks at that point. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So they find him in the trunk. His pants are down to his knees. They find $3,900, some extra clothes. He was sharing the trunk space with, um, like, the Wendy's uh, luggage and shit. So he only had, like, a little space to, like... Oh, my gosh. She, Wendy, could, Wendy couldn't have put that in the back seat? I know, right? It's disrespectful. <laughs> they find empty candy bar wrappers and two bottles filled with pee. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. So, so all this time, right? Like he's facing, um, you know, I guess attempt, attempted murder because she hadn't passed away yet up until this point, but the NFL and the Panthers were still behind him. Like he was still employed. Oh, geez. Yeah. But now when they find him. Off season or like, cause he's obviously like not been going to things. Um, I think he was still hurt. Oh, okay. It might have been the off season. I actually don't remember uh, what month this was now. You would think like like trainers or coaching staff or somebody would have been like in contact with him on a daily basis. Right, but I but like at this point, that's when they finally cut ties with him. But I wrote down like, could you imagine if this had happened today? Right. Like it would never get this far. No, not even close. Ever. Which is, I mean, and this was only in what like 1999. Yeah. So. It's only like 20 years ago. Yeah. You know? Um, so at this point, the trial starts. Um, Carruth hires a man named David Rudolph to represent him. Does that name ring a bell to you? David Rudolph. No. Should it? No, well, not if you're not into true crime. <laughs> but if you're into Netflix, it might. So this guy is a well-known attorney. Okay. Carolina. He was the same attorney for Michael Peterson. Oh, okay. You know Michael Peterson? Yep. The staircase? Yep. Okay. Well, 
for our listeners who don't know the story, because I got I got I got to tell you, it's one of the crazier stories. <laughs> this man was convicted for the murder of his wife, right? So yeah. she, it's a crazy story. This lady was found at the bottom of her staircase, um, like bleeding out, mm-hmm. uh, while he was allegedly waiting for her by the pool, <laughs> and he claims that she fell. Um, but the autopsy report, like with the, the blood splatter analysis and all that was like, yeah, no, that's not, that's not. (laughs) And then they like start to dig into him and they find out that his first wife also died falling down the stairs. How ironic. Yeah. Right. And, and so they like opened the case into that. And then there was this whole other like side story with this like crazy owl theory that she was attacked by an owl and rushed inside and hit her head and died. And, like, people actually believe that that's how, like, she died, that it wasn't Michael Peterson. It was an owl who attacked her. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it's, it's a wild story. It's, it's a really good show. Watch it. It's called The Staircase on Netflix. Do it. You won't be disappointed. Anyway, so this guy is his lawyer. Same lawyer for Michael Peterson. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go to trial, and the, the uh, state or the city ends up charging him with first-degree murder conspiracy to commit a murder using an instrument to with intent to destroy an unborn child and discharging a firearm into an occupied property right so all these charges he goes to trial for um for a while can he get like attempted murder for the for the baby or does it not work like that um it's like added on charge like obviously she died so that's murder but in terms of like i mean he tried to kill the baby too yeah I mean, I think that's what the, like, using an instrument with intent to destroy an unborn child is. Okay. So yeah, that's... I think it's just, like, a more court-friendly way of saying, I don't know. Right. Um, but, yeah, essentially, yes. Um, the thing with the first-degree murder, though, is that there's something about it having, you have to prove that there was, like, it was aggravated and it was planned. Um and that maybe something about him being the one to actually pull the trigger. I don't know. There's like some like technicality stuff on there, but they end up going with first degree murder charge, right? Instead of second degree murder or any other degree, like first degree is what they, they go in with. That's the big one. Yeah. So for a while in the beginning, uh, Caruth claimed that he saw the car pull up and that he got scared and he fled and that um, like he didn't know, he didn't had no idea what it was about, that he didn't know that, um, that she got shot at first. But then it's like, yeah, dude, but you fled and you never came back to check on her. Or called the police or... <laughs> exactly. Like, you didn't do anything to, to, to make sure that she was okay or to, to even show that you were... It had nothing, had nothing to do with it or had no idea that it was happening. And her 911 call, though, like, kind of corroborates this because she says that... Um, you know, he wasn't with her or that she, that she didn't know he had anything to do with it, that he was just in another car and that he happened to flee. Right. Right. So, so her 911 call doesn't exactly help that or, or destroy that story, but then he changes his story and he says that it was actually, you know, he had come up with this uh, deal with Watkins to um, purchase this like huge amount of, of cannabis and that the deal had gone wrong and he pulled out of the deal. And like, there was like this huge sum of money that he owed to Watkins and Watkins was trying to pay him back. Um, and so he pulled up and shot at the car and ended up killing Sharika, but he was actually there to uh, get proof. 
Right? So that's the story that they they go in with, and his team goes hard with the story. Like that's that's their story. They're sticking with it. Right. So during the trial, um, they have a whole bunch of different people uh, testify. They actually bring up some of his exes, which don't help Kruth at all. Nope. Um, his baby mama <laughs> from college uh, tells them that one time she was trying to see them, or she was trying to bring her kid to see Kruth. And that Karuth was like, was like not having it. He was like, don't be surprised if you end up in a car accident. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then he brings, they bring up another woman who he got pregnant. Um, I don't remember if it was in college or after he had become pro, but she, yeah. he actually got her to, to go through with the abortion. And she tells them that he told her, don't make me send someone out there to kill you. You know, you know, I'll do it. I can't have this baby. Oh my gosh. He's just out there trying to kill anyone trying to have his baby. Yo, like that's on him, man. Like wrap it up. <laughs> exactly. It's so easy. Jeez Louise. That's horrible, horrible person. Um, so one of the other people that they bring up to testify is Watkins. And we know this guy's wild. He's gonna say anything. Yeah. He doesn't give a shit. Um, and like, he was super aggressive the entire time during his testimony, he kept calling, uh, Ray the bitch. He's like, yeah, that bitch right there. <laughs> like, <laughs> in the courtroom, like just no regard for, I, I don't know. So he claims that Ray had actually harassed him for six months straight to kill Sharika. Like he was like, this dude would not let it go. He just wanted to get rid of Sharika. He called me for six months straight. I think he brought up the fact that he called him like 150 times at this point. Um, and then like on a sadder note, he actually describes like, what it was like shooting Sharika because he like, it's out. Like he's the one that pulled the trigger. Right, right, right. This is the trial for Ray. And so he is actually describes like shooting Sharika and being able to hear her choking on her own blood. Oh my God. Why is that necessary? He's a monster. Yeah. At one point, uh, David Rudolph, the attorney, is like getting, like wanting him to actually say these things out loud because he, they, they figure like the more we can put on walk-ins, the less uh, charges that Ray's going to get. Right. His, his client can walk away and, and, and he says something about like, oh yeah, you grab that gun so that you can kill Sharika. And Watkins goes, I don't need a gun. I'm 286 pounds. I could rip you like a rag doll. <laughs> What a nutcase. Yeah. So at that point, the attorney's like, I rest my case. Thank right. you. No further questions. <laughs> um, but like at another part, like he actually ends up becoming really um, emotional during his testimony. And he would like got really angry. And he's like, I didn't want to kill her. I didn't want to kill the baby. All this stuff. Like he made me do it. And he like got up from his chair and he like yelled at Kruth. He's like, are you happy now? Like now she's dead. Are you happy now? Like it just got like super emotional and like just wild. Right. So finally, January 2001, um, it's almost a year since uh, Sharika was first shot. Uh, Caruth is convicted of all charges except first degree murder. No. Yeah. Um, I think what happened there is that with first degree murder, he was facing uh, the death penalty and the jury just wasn't able to agree on that charge. Um, they weren't able to all rally around the fact that it was first degree um, and, and, and make this decision for him to get the death penalty or not. Wow. Um, so they were able to agree on all the other charges except that one. Um, in the end, the baby does survive. 
Chancellor Lee. Um, he is diagnosed with cerebral palsy because of the lack of oxygen um, for that hour. Um, and his grandmother, Sandra, uh, takes him in and raises him. And, and she's just an incredible woman. Like there's, there's uh, footage and video of her talking to um, the Charlotte Observer and these other interviews and just talking about forgiveness um, and, and in a way, being happy about what she learns coming out of this experience. Mm -hmm. um, and though she's sad that her daughter isn't there anymore, she's also happy that she was able to, to raise Chancellor. Right. Um, just, just such a strong, forgiving woman. Like, I, I don't know that I could ever do that. Not even close. No I mean, way. <laughs> no, I like heard the other day of a story of a, a, a woman whose kid was molested at school and she like showed up to the trial of the guy and just like walked in and shot him. Yeah, like, that's, that's, that'd be more my style. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive this. <laughs> Look, I'm glad you said that because I wasn't trying to say that book. <laughs> um, so yeah, so she talks about like forgiving these men who took her daughter away and, and how they impacted her son in such a huge way. Um, but um, but she forgave them. Um, it was actually Watkins was the first out of all of them because because it wasn't just Ray and Watkins who who were convicted. I think the other two guys were too. Um, she says that Watkins was the first one to actually write her a letter asking her for forgiveness in 2003. Um, there's like footage of her reading the letter and like what he said to her. If people are interested, I, I highly recommend you look that up. It's um, crazy. Um, but, and Chancellor actually grew up to be a really big fan of the Carolina Panthers. Um, they've shown him a lot of love. Um, they've invited him out to the games and he's met the team a few times. Um, they actually paid for him, um, for a full week, all expense trip to London to see them play last year, um, which was pretty cool. Um, so, you know, as horrible as the story ended with, with Ray and the Panthers, at least, you know, they're, they're doing what they can to to make it right with the, with his son, you know? How how old is he now? He's 20. I feel like I've seen photos, now that you're saying it, with him, with, like, the team, and, like, um, wow. I got goosebumps as you were saying it because I started to, like, kind of picture, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I've seen this kid, like, interacting with the team and photo ops and, like, on social media in different capacities. Yeah. Um, that is crazy. You definitely have because I think so. Ray was actually released in October 2018. No way, he's out. What the heck is wrong? How much time did he serve? Just under 19 years. That's absurd. Yeah. So he's been in the news. Um, I mean, not in the last year, but definitely around that time. And so I think, I think that's probably why you have like recent memories of seeing his son with the Panthers and stuff. Because I think that with all the talk about him coming out, getting out of prison, I think they were nervous about like, well, what's this gonna look like? Is he gonna try to reach out to him? Like, is he gonna try to have a relationship with him? Like this guy is a horrible person. Like the Panthers want nothing to do with him and they probably to help. I mean, I don't wanna say that this is the reason why they did it, but it's probably a PR move to, to, to do something good for the kid, you know? Right. No, a hundred percent. No, I feel like I saw a photo of like Cam Newton in him. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but he actually has reached out to him. Um, and, and it just recently, it was in December of 2019. Um, he didn't, I don't think he actually said anything to him, but he sent Sandra like a big uh, paycheck. Oh, he still got money? Apparently, I don't know how. Um, Cause I think he like went bankrupt during the trial. Like I don't yeah, think he, he would have thought. Yeah. 
I think there was something about like the state having to pay his attorney because he didn't have the, the funds anymore to pay him. So somehow he, he fell into this money and he sent it to his son. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, I mean, his son is, is thriving as best as he can for, for his condition. There's, there's yeah. video of him, um, you know, doing physical therapy and, and, and talking and he's, um, he's doing okay. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's as sad as it is. Um, you know, they, he does talk about his mom and he calls her his angel and, and, and he's, he's pulling through as best he can. Um, and Ray, he got out and he's a horrible person, but that is the story of Ray Caruth, the first active NFL player to be charged with first degree murder. Oh my God. Where, where's Ray right now? Like, what's he doing? I don't think anyone knows. He hasn't been like spotted anywhere? No, I, the, the latest um, that I was able to find about him was that he got out. There's actually video of him walking out of the prison. Um, and then after that is him um, reaching out to, uh, to his son and giving him that money. But, yep. And the, uh, the other guy, I forgot his name already. Um, Watkins. Watkins, where's he? He's still doing time. I think he got, I think he got life. Yeah, good. Yeah. But there's, there's, so there's like, he actually talks to reporters and there's interviews with him and um, he is still just as crazy. I mean, he set his, his, another inmate on fire. Like he's. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, he has nothing to lose, I guess. I mean, he's, yeah. he's going to be in there forever. So. Yeah. That is insane. Is there, where can I like read or watch or see some of these things? Like what was your best news source that I can follow up? So definitely the Charlotte Observer. Um, highly recommend the the podcast called Caruth. Um, I think it was eight episodes, um, and they just go into like way more details, and they have interviews, and and you can hear the nine one one call. Um, I know for some people it's a they lot. don't want to hear that. Um, yeah. It's a yeah. lot to listen to, but but if if you can stomach it, I I, I do highly recommend it. Um, it's a really well told story, um, and and these guys uh, really followed it from the beginning, especially being from Charlotte. Um, so they, there's a lot of details in there, and um, actually, uh, another uh, resource or source that I had was uh, Steve Harvey did um, a, a bit on Ray Caruth and for the Kings of Comedy tour, which is pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> so I'll send that to you after this too. Please do. Yeah. Um, and so Watkins, though, if you want to know a little bit more about him, um, I think it's on AMC, the show called The Killer Speaks. Um, there's an episode on him in season two where they sit down with him and he talks about what he did. And there are a lot of, I'm sure, crazy quotes that you can pull from that. Oh, my gosh. I yeah. will check it out. Yep. So how did that make you feel? Are you a true crime fan now? A hundred percent. I feel kind of emotionally um, kind of all over the place right now. That's uh, such a bizarre story. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, it's surprising he's the first, but he's probably not, he wasn't the last, right? I mean, no, we want to talk about Aaron Hernandez. Yeah, that's a whole, <laughs> we're going to need like two, two, three hours for that one. <laughs> wow. Well, that's amazing. Well, thank you for having me as the first guest. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being here. I hope. Um, I hope you don't think I'm weird and I hope uh, maybe now you understand a little bit more why these stories are so captivating for me. A hundred percent. No, keep, keep them coming. Yeah. Well, thanks JT. This was fun. Thank you so much, Adriana. All right. I hope you come back again. <laughs> Will do. Okay.
Bye. Bye.